If the Lord so wills, this coming Christmas will mark my family's 30th unbroken reading of this book, The Year of the Perfect Christmas Tree. We read it first at Christmas, 1994. I was 31 years old. My oldest daughter, who is now 34 years old, was six years old. And for the last five years, a grandchild has been present at the reading of this book. Now, I don't tell you that because I think you're interested in my family's history. I'm sure you're not. There's not much interesting about it. But just to point out later, when we read the words, for a little while, this might let you know how quickly time passes. We already sang this morning, life is but a vapor. So keep that in mind as you live. Keep that in mind as you choose in this world. But this story is about a mother and her little daughter, Ruthie, and they're trying to survive in the Appalachian Mountains during World War I. Their father is away. He's fighting. And one day they receive a letter from him saying, I'll be home for Christmas. The war is finally over. The days passed. Each day, Ruthie ran home from school as fast as the deer that fed by the stream. Is Papa home? She called as she ran up the steps. But every day, Mama said, not today, maybe tomorrow. The days passed. Ruthie listened for the squeaky whistle of the little train as it chugged through the valley and up the mountainside. One day, Mama and Ruthie harnessed old Petey to the sled and went to the station at Paniola. But when the other men from the village stepped down from the train, Papa was not with them. Now, I'm not going to tell you how this story ends. You'll have to buy it from yourself, for yourself. But I'll tell you, it's a very good ending to a very true story. And as you read, you can feel the disappointment and the sadness when day after day, this father who's loved so greatly by his father, whose presence is longed for, does not return. As you read, you anticipate the joy that will particularly be in the heart of this little girl, Ruthie, when one day, her father finally does step off of that train. Now, you might think from my reading this story that this morning, oh, we're going to talk about the return of Christ. We're not going to talk about the return of Christ. It's just that this story came to my mind when I was working on this passage in First Peter, when I was wondering about how you and how I really view Christ How much do we really long for him? How much do we anticipate the joy that his presence brings to us? Are we listening for the whistle? Are we going to the station? Are we waiting? Are we watching for him to step into our lives every single day? I don't know the answer to those questions for you, but I know this, you and I, must find our greatest joy in Christ. We must find our greatest joy in Christ. 
That's what we're going to talk about as we return this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible with you, take it now, please. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. When you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless your word, fulfill your promise, break your word to us now as the bread of life, feed our souls, nourish our spirits through it. Father, leave us after this with the longing of more and more and more of you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'll ask you if you want to look again in verse 6. And Peter writes there, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Well, what is the this to which Peter refers? Well, the this is the gifts of God's mercy at which we've been looking in these past weeks. We've been born again into a living hope, and this you rejoice. We have an inheritance, and this you rejoice. We are being guarded by God's power for salvation, and this you rejoice. Peter writes it as a statement, as a settled fact. Here's my question. Could it be that Peter is being a bit presumptuous or overconfident here? Is he presuming or assuming more about you and me than he ought? To presume is to, to, to suppose something to be true based on probability. So given the facts of who Jesus is, and what he has done for us and given to us, it is probably true that you should rejoice in him. But do you? To assume is to suppose something to be true without proof. Peter isn't here looking for proof of rejoicing because he assumes that every believer in Christ 
will find their greatest joy in him. Well, I think I should not presume or assume this morning. So I must ask you directly, do you rejoice in Christ and these good gifts of God's mercy? Before you answer that question, let's define what rejoicing means. It means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be glad, to be overjoyed. Are you exceedingly joyful, exultant, overjoyed in Christ and his good gifts to you? And the reason I keep asking you this question is because this verse is a bit like a flowchart. And you know how a flowchart works. If you answer yes to the question in the box, then you proceed to the next box. If you answer no to the question in the box, then you have to start all over again. So here, if you answer yes, I'm rejoicing in Christ, then you proceed And to what do you proceed? Verse 6 tells us, Though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. And so as Peter orders it here, it's rejoicing in Christ, every day listening for the whistle, longing for him to step into our day, and it's the longing for the inheritance that awaits us, you and I, who are almost home, that enables us to endure the trials of life that surely await every one of us before we at last receive our inheritance. And so it works like this. Joy, suffering, joy. That was the pattern for Christ's life who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, it was Christ's joy to come from heaven to this earth to do the will of his Father. And while he was doing the will of the Father, he could see the joy that would be his when he returned once again to his Father. And so what did he do? He endured the cross in between joy, suffering, joy. Joy is what Christ sets before you and me like it was set before him. Jesus said in the upper room, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus said in the upper room, Truly I say to you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus said in the upper room, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus said in the upper room, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus prayed in the upper room. Now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy, 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 six times joy. On the last night of his life on earth, 
He offers and he prays for joy for his disciples. Do you have joy right now? Jesus said you could have it. Jesus prayed that you would have it now. And so the pattern for Christ, the pattern for Peter that he offers here, the one that he himself lived out, the pattern for you and me is this. Joy, suffering, joy. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Followed by, verse 6, grieved by various trials. Followed by, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy, suffering, joy. Our suffering is bookended. It's wrapped up inside the joy of the Lord. So I have to assume that means if you and I are not rejoicing in Christ. If we're not finding our greatest joy in Him, then we are ill-prepared to face the trials and the sufferings of this life. So if the answer is no in the flowchart, the no answer means you and I have to go back to the beginning. You and I have to look again at Christ and at the gift of God's mercy until we rejoice. I was working on this sermon, and when I wrote the words, go back, I heard a voice in my head. The voice was saying, Craig, you cannot turn this study of 1 Peter into another Deuteronomy. And for those of you who are new to Redeemer, I spent four and a half years in the book of Deuteronomy when I had intended only to preach 28 sermons from it. And so I was tempted to move on. I can't go back. I can't go back. But then, honestly, I sensed the Lord saying, don't presume, don't assume people have trials. People are suffering right now. Don't assume the joy is there. Put it before them. Put it before them. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the joy before you right now. Let's look at this inheritance. Go back. (laughs) Go back. Verse 3. Peter piles up words here, one on top of the other, so that our eyes pop and our jaw drops at how amazing and eternal our inheritance is. He describes it as imperishable. It cannot perish. It cannot die. You and I are used to, in this world, things that perish. We all know what the perishable food pushed into the back of the refrigerator looks like and smells like after it has perished. Often we don't discover that food until it has perished. Not so with our inheritance. It is of such a quality that it will never perish, never die. It's unlike anything we know in this world. There's nothing else in our world like it. Because listen, our world, this world, is itself perishing. This place in which we live, it's perishing. The world itself is waiting to be renewed and restored. 
our inheritance, imperishable. Then Peter describes it as undefiled, pure. Nothing can stain or taint it. You and I look at our babies, precious, newborn. And though our theology tells us that they are not pure or perfect, they seem to us to be perfect, at least when they're sleeping. And all the new parents said, amen. But we know that we were all babies once, all of us. And we know how life stains us and taints us and those we love. How it robs us of that purity. How it hardens us so that we cannot believe that there ever was an innocent baby. Not so with our inheritance. It is and always will be perfectly pure and gleaming. Nothing can change that. Nothing can stain stain or taint what Christ has for us. In this you rejoice. Peter says it's unfading. Thirdly, our inheritance will never lose its pristine quality. You know, we pick a perfectly formed rose from a bush. We bring it inside. The petals wilt. The petals fall. The color fades. And the beautiful scent dissipates. That's what we know. That's not our inheritance. It will never ever look dull to us. You know, you and I say the things of the world, well, the shine is certainly off the apple. That's how things work in our minds. Not so with our inheritance. Instead, it will only and forever look more lustrous to us. You know, I think that we might fear that a little bit. I've had this thought that eternity in heaven might get a little bit boring. The same old, same old, I mean, honestly. No, the unfading character of Christ, who is our inheritance in heaven, is such that we will never be bored. <laughs> the glory of it, listen, the glory of it is never going to fade. It's only going to increase. We don't have a category in our mind for that yet. <laughs> But one day we will, and in that we must rejoice. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, this is the inheritance that is for the believer in Christ. If you aren't rejoicing in it, go back and look at it again and again and again. And rejoice in the magnificently, indescribably uneven exchange that has been made on your behalf so that you get this inheritance. Do you remember the vision that God gives to the prophet Zechariah? It's a vision to ignite Zechariah's imagination. And the imaginations of all of God's people who will hear this prophetic word and who will think about 
the symbols and what they represent about God's reality. Well, I hope it ignites joy in you as, as I retell it to you this morning. And here it is, as Zechariah tells us. An angel guides him, Zechariah, into a heavenly courtroom. And Zechariah sees Joshua, who is the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now remember this. Whenever you read the angel, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ before Christ came to earth. So here's Joshua. He's the one who is supposed to represent all the people before God. He is the one who is supposed to lead the people through God's appointed means of forgiving their sins and purifying them. Well, he's standing before the Lord and he's dressed in filthy, soiled, dirty garments. More specifically, clothes soiled with excrement, which would defile anyone who wore such clothes. If he, the high priest, is covered with excrement, what hope does anyone else have before God? Listen, no greater problem exists for human beings than standing filthy before a perfectly, purely, holy God. It can't be done. If Hollywood were producing this dream sequence, they would have to use CGI to decimate, disintegrate, and obliterate Joshua in this moment. But the angel of the Lord intervenes. And he said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And the angel of the Lord said to Joshua, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. What an exchange. And then the Lord said, put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And then scripture says, the angel of the Lord was standing by. Christ was watching as this exchange was made. Joshua shows up filthy with sin. And Jesus gives him pure garments. I have taken away your iniquity. I will clothe you with pure vestments. And what does Joshua do? Nothing. He shows up dirty and he goes away clean because of the grace of the Lord. Is that reason to rejoice? What an amazing vision. It's too good to be true. It's no wonder that Peter writes here then in verse 10. Will you look in verse 10 with me? Concerning this salvation, the prophets, Zechariah, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, pure clothes for filthy ones, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Zechariah must have thought, 
as the Lord was giving him this vision, I don't fully understand what I'm seeing. I don't fully understand who I'm seeing. But I long to know more and more and more and more and more. What's your longing like? You who have been blessed with the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. Are you rejoicing in the exchange that Christ has made for you through his work on the cross? Are you longing to know Christ more and more and more? Jesus came to earth. He became incarnate. And what story did he tell? He told the story of the son who returned home to his father wearing dirty clothes that reeked of the stench of the pig pen and the excrement of the pig pen. And what did the father say to the servants? Quickly! Bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Again, we rejoice in this completely uneven exchange. The dirty, smelly clothes that belong to you and me because of our sin piled in a heap and the beautiful, clean, pure robe of the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And what did we give for them? Nothing. Are you rejoicing in what Christ has done for you? Are you longing to experience more of the joy that His presence and His work will bring to your next minute? to your next hour, to your next day, to your next year? Is that longing making you listen for the whistle every day to watch for those train doors to open and for Jesus to step into your day every day? Listen, I cannot compel you to rejoice in Christ. And I would never attempt to guilt you into it. Because I would never so diminish my Savior and your Savior by suggesting that it requires guilt for people to want to look at Him and His glory and His goodness and His grace and to rejoice in it. No. I can only put before your eyes and my eyes the glory of who Christ is and what He has done. And you can put that glory before your own eyes every single day as you look for it. And find it in the word of God. And so I'll say this to you this morning. If you aren't rejoicing, go back. Look again, look again, and again, and again, and again. Until you are rejoicing. Because here's the deal. You are going to need that joy. I am going to need that joy. You are almost home. Oh, pilgrim of God. But you are not home yet. And neither am I. The joy of Jesus is what helps us get through the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties of this life until we make it to the next. If Jesus is your greatest joy, 
If Jesus is my greatest joy, we can make it through anything. If Jesus is our greatest joy, we can make it through anything. If you long to see Jesus and know his joy, you will. The Holy Spirit assures that. C.S. Lewis writes, No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is open. Let's pray. Father, show us your glory, we pray. As we see the glory of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the joy will follow behind very quickly. So open our eyes to see your glory. Fill us with your joy. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.